We're going to be back at Acts chapter 1 today. I ask you to turn there with me. Last week, our introduction of this phenomenal book that is arguably our story because what began in the book of Acts, we know God intends to continue through us today. Never has a book been more relevant for a church than the book of Acts is for us at this early stage in our church. We want to be the church that Jesus is building as he promised he would. And so what we learned, began to learn last week as we looked at those first 11 verses, which really are the seed of the whole. Luke sets our sights already. Luke is one of the most gifted writers, in this case an eyewitness to much of what he's writing about. And he begins by telling us what the whole story is. And now he's gonna give us the details he's gonna fill in. This week is one of those opportunities for us to look at a passage that were we not going through the book, we might otherwise miss. Let's read it together. And then before we really dig into this passage, we're gonna do some of that hard work that you always have to do at the beginning of a book study and lay some of the foundation to help us really approach the book of Acts appropriately. You're gonna write down some of these things because they're gonna be our roadmap to going through the book of Acts. But let's just begin reading. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he had uh, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them his command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, For John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven." And now our new territory, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in his ministry. 
With the reward he got from his wickedness, Judas bought a field which he fell, where he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he added to the 11 apostles. All right, so before we dig into this passage, and some of the things I'm going to share will help guide how we look at this passage, I want to deal with two general topics. And the first is I want to talk about the key themes of the book of Acts, and I want to talk about interpretive keys for us to use. When we went through the Gospels, do you remember, we talked about three interpretive keys that help guide our whole study, the man Jesus, the message of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. Well, in the same way, there are interpretive keys that we're going to see in the book of Acts. But let's first just review some of the themes that we're going to run into. The the first and primary theme is the story of the church. Not only its birth, and I know that theologically some of us could argue whether the church actually started here, but certainly the church that Jesus said, I'm going to build, began at Pentecost in a very unique and profound way. It's not only the beginning of the church, but it's the early years of the church. The struggles that they, that they had to deal with, what they had to grow and increase in their understanding, the conflicts that were there, the forms, the traditions, all those different things. So the story of the church that we still are part of today. The second theme is the gospel. You will have absolutely no ambiguity by the time we're done with the book of Acts with the early apostles and the early evangelists preached about the gospel. It shows up throughout the entire book. Last week we talked about it when we were doing our introduction, and we will hear that repeated over and over again. People often ask, why is it entitled the Acts of the Apostles? And some suggest it should rather be entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and that certainly is one of the themes. In fact, it's the third theme, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the coming and the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is not just the Holy Spirit. They are in tandem. The gospel is the message that is the power of God to transformation. The Holy Spirit is what gives it legs, what brings it into people's hearts and lives. So they work together. The Holy Spirit and his work in and through the church as he still continues and desires to work today. There's the theme of persecution and perseverance, how the gospel and the believers faced boldly even death itself for Christ. And persecution could not stop the great movement of God. And then a fifth theme is the sovereignty of God, how God uses all circumstances to accomplish his will. Even when men are acting out of rebellion to God, 
and are responsible for their own choices and decisions, even those things God uses in accomplishing his plan. So those are the five themes that we're going to see come through the entire study that's going to carry us right through into the fall. Let me just talk about some interpretive keys. Now, those of you who are doing life groups are doing a personal study on the book of Acts to prepare for the sermon, and then you're going to do a group discussion on the sermons and on your personal study. So I, I know that that's a pretty heavy commitment, and I'm very excited to see what God's going to bring into your life out of that. But if you have some spare time, you might want to go back and go through the sermons that we did in the series entitled Eat This Book, where we talked about Scripture, what it is, and how we're meant to interpret it. One of the things is to recognize the type of writing, because that very much dictates how we apply. In this case, this is history. And what's unique about biblical history is it happens on two levels, the natural world and the supernatural world. It's not just the affairs of man, it's the affairs of God intermingling. So it's a real story, right? What that also means is that some of these events are one-time events that have a very important meaning in the story but don't translate into events that necessarily are to occur in our life. You don't say because this happened in this way to these people. That means it must happen in that way to us. You don't take doctrine explicitly out of story. Most doctrine is implied in storyline. We can take principles out, we can see patterns, but we have to go to where doctrine is explicitly taught in order to clarify what we're supposed to understand about story. That's really important because we're going to look at some of the most hotly debated pieces in the story of, of Christianity as we come to the book of Acts, none the least of which is next week when we study the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But it, it is a real story. And the theme of the story is summarized in this, the gospel coming from Jerusalem to Rome. Make no mistake, Luke wants you to know that story. This isn't a memoir. This is an adventure. It's a journey of where the gospel began by transforming through the power of the Holy Spirit 120 people in Jerusalem and eventually got to the epicenter, the most powerful place in the world, where it literally transformed the entire world. That's the real story that we're going to be studying. The second interpretive key is to look along the way of that journey for what I'm going to call scenic overviews. Scenic overviews. One of my great memories uh, in my days running youth groups was riding a bicycle up Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. It's about a 12% grade all the way up from uh, Bar Harbor. It's this wrapping road, and along the way, there were these scenic overviews where you could pull off, and I'll admit, I took advantage of every single overview. Isn't this beautiful? <sighs> I, I would repeat that trip, but only the second half. The part where you go down. The beauty of the scenic overview is you could look and you could see where you'd come from. You go, wow, that's 
Very impressive. Well, Luke does that. Part of his story writing, his style, is to pause from the narrative and back up and take a snapshot, sort of a scenic overview. And we're going to have to pay very careful attention to those because Luke now, remember, is looking back. So when he takes a snapshot, he's saying these are the important things I want you to notice that are going on here because they impact the whole. So we will pause at these various scenic overviews. He'll help us see the important things that we're supposed to take from it. A third interpretive key to the book of Acts is to recognize that it's really a book of speeches. There are lengthy sermons and lectures that take place. Each of these sermons plays a very important role in helping us understand an important doctrine or a certain approach to bringing the message of the gospel to these different people groups along the way. So you recognize what we're talking about? The the book of Acts is an underlying narrative of the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Rome and how the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God and the obedience of the believers got it there. Interspersed, there are these scenic overviews that help you capture the most important images of what's happening, and then interspersed with them, there are pivotal sermons and teaching along the way that really help us get the full picture of what it was that the early church preached and the message that is ours today to continue. So uh, I would call those three very important interpretive keys. Two other comments. What the book of Acts will help us recognize is that Christianity is a movement not an institution. Because we're 2,000 years plus into this journey, uh, and because the, the church has gone through various stages and still today is represented by all sorts of organizations with their own traditions, their own forms of governance, because we have engaged in civil litigation and we are a 501c3 nonprofit with our constitution and our bylaws and we have our meetings and plan and organize, it would be very easy to forget that that's not what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to build my church. He didn't envision a healthy organization that dots all its I's and crosses its T's. He intended and saw and still today sees a transformational movement of the Holy Spirit bringing the power of the gospel to change lives radically to the very ends of the earth. The church is a movement. If you're looking for a church and you have your idea of what that should look like, This is what I'm looking for in a church, and this is what I want for my kids and the type of music I want, the type of preaching I want. You're just looking for all the wrong things. I'm not saying those things shouldn't be important, but that's not what Jesus means by the church. All that is institutional. It's organizational. And the church never once in the New Testament is described by either of those terms. It's an organic thing that is living and on the move. We are not building a church that is healthy because it does all the things that make an organization function or meets its obligations or makes decisions in whatever way you think churches ought to make decisions. It's because God is at work through us and lives are being transformed. And we are just one of the aspects of this great movement of God that still today is reaching out to the ends of the earth. 
That's a very important interpretive key. We're a movement. Second, I've already talked about this. When we look to apply it, we need to first look for principles more than promises. That's how you approach narrative. We always interpret the implied with what is explicitly taught in Scripture. Narratives imply the epistles The teachings of the apostles throughout the book of Acts will give us explicit understanding. So as we're looking at the storylines, what we're looking for are principles to apply. First, we don't look and say, because this happened to them, that's a promise, it will happen that way to us. All right? Those are the interpretive keys. So with that in mind, we actually come to our first scenic overview of the narrative. When Luke says that they went back to Jerusalem, and he takes this snapshot of them. Basically, what we'd say is that they were in waiting, ready and waiting, because that's what Jesus told them to do. We have the 11 apostles listed. We have Mary, mother of Jesus. We have other women. And then we have, interestingly, Jesus' brothers and sisters. But I wish I had time to take you through the multiple passages in the Bible that indicate that Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. And that even though at first in the Gospels, they thought he'd gone off his rocker and showed up a couple times to try to pull him out, eventually even his siblings could not argue who he was, and they came to faith and were part of the early church. That's an interesting little sub-story right there. But they're there, and they're waiting. And then we have this moment where Peter determines that they need to fill the void among the 12 that is left by the betrayal and subsequent death, suicide of Judas. Now, this is a fascinating little text. I have, over the last couple of weeks, while I have been preparing this, gone around and just asked people that I knew were Christians two questions. I asked Anna those questions yesterday. I said, do you know the name of the man who replaced Judas among the 12 apostles? Very few even know the name, but Matthias. My second question is, and what critical role does Matthias play later on in the book of Acts that makes this an important part of the story? Does anybody know? The answer is none whatsoever. That's what makes this such a fascinating little piece. Luke writes intentionally when he introduces Paul in just a few chapters. Obviously, that's just not a temporary moment. He introduces Paul because he's gonna play a critical role. But yet, as far as we can tell, Matthias fills this empty slot, but he's not mentioned again in the New Testament. Church tradition says he went to Ethiopia as a missionary. The feast of St. Matthias is often thought of as the luckiest day of the year because he won essentially a raffle in order to become the the apostle. So I I think that's kind of funny. St. Matthias is the patron saint of raffles. It's all very interesting, but why is it in here? And when you do research, there are varying opinions as to whether this was of God or not. You'll find those uh, who strongly say that Matthias was the right choice. And there are others that say, no, Paul is the 12th apostle. So which is it? And let me just remind you, Acts 1, 4 through 8, this is what Jesus said to do. There it is. Let's say it together. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, the Holy Spirit. You will receive power and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So that's where they are. They're in prayer. And it's out of this that Peter stands up and proposes to fill the spot that Judas had left. Let me give you some of the cons why this may not have been anything more than just an organizational act. The cons are that Jesus didn't tell them to go do this. What did Jesus tell them to do? Just go and wait. Wait and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And what did he promise about the Holy Spirit among many things? That the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And that's the second con. This is before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. The third potential thing to look at here and wonder if this was not just a human act, and that is that it's, it's Peter who's doing the function. <laughs> it's Peter before the Holy Spirit. It's the Peter that we followed through the whole gospel who, as you know, would rather do something or say something than just wait. I was telling Vit the dilemma of, of interpreting this passage and the possibility that this was maybe just Peter trying to do something rather than do nothing. And Vit reminded me of this old song from Mr. Rogers. And I actually went and found it. Do you remember this song? Let's think of something to do while we're waiting, while we're waiting for something new to do. You know it's really all right. In fact, it's downright quite right to think of something to do that's specific for you. Let's think of something to do while we're waiting. Somebody suggests I should walk over and put a sweater and sneakers on while we were playing that video. Is it possible that's all this was? A restless Peter saying, I should do something. We got this open spot. Is that possible? Is it possible that they jumped the gun when God had a different plan once the Holy Spirit came and a man at the time named Saul, whom he would appoint, his own appointment? That, that certainly is a possibility. But let me give you the pros for this being a good and proper choice. The first is the obvious. Luke doesn't say it was a mistake. He really doesn't pronounce judgment on it all. And it's important enough to him to make note of. So just that fact, that would seem to argue that it was a good decision. When you look at um, the, the fact that all of these early believers were Jews, there's a lot to argue that this was reasonable in terms of what it took to form a synagogue, the minimum number of people, and how that broke down into various groups. So there's certainly logic to Peter's thinking. We can certainly say that. There is the fact that Jesus had promised the 12. He said, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. There were only 11 at the time. So you can understand the logic of that. Those all would indicate this might have been a proper thing to do. Here's where I land on it. I just don't know. I'm not sure that's the point of the story. But if I had to land somewhere, I'd probably land on that it was a proper step to take, given Peter's looking intently into Scripture and that they had been in great prayer. I would lean towards saying that this was probably a godly choice, and Matthias did serve an important role in some way, like many of the apostles who remain nameless as we go through 
the rest of the story. But if I were to try to look at this passage and say, why is it in there? It's not there so that Matthias can find his place in history. There's something else that's there. Here's what I think the key is. I think the key in looking at this is to see it through the lens of the first three words of verse 15, right where the event starts. What are the first three words? In those days. In those days. And then what are the first words of chapter 2, verse 1, which we'll look at next week? And when the day of Pentecost came. I think Luke is using this piece of the story, legitimate or not, to make this decision with Matthias, to underscore and to contrast the way people sought the will of God before Pentecost and what's about to happen after Pentecost. It's almost like Moses when he wrote, in those days, talking about before the flood and Noah, in those days there were Nephilim that walked the earth. See, that was a different time. I think Luke is now looking back and seeing what transpired here in that upper room as a different time. This is how decisions were made in those days. And what was the difference between those days and these days? Very simple. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the very last time you ever see lots being cast in the Bible as a way to determine the will of God. But in the Old Testament, that was a very common thing. Jonah, how did God help the men on the ship determine who was under God's judgment? They cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. Even in the temple, the high priest carried with him two instruments, the Urim and the Tumen, that were used to divine the will of God. We don't know exactly what they were, but they were carried near his chest. One meant no, and the other yes. And depending on how he rolled them, which one was dominant determined whether God was saying yes or no. Now, I want to be clear about this. It would be as though we took one of those magic eight balls from Spencer Gifts and said, Lord, should I marry Susan? Move, Lord, move the magic eight ball, Lord. Now, God did move, and he did instruct through those things, but it's the best that people had at that time because what they didn't have was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus promise the Holy Spirit would do? Guide you into all truth. That's the difference. What did Gideon do in order to determine God's will was clear? He put out a fleece. One time he said, I want all the ground to be wet. I want the fleece to be dry. And the next time he said, I'm not sure yet, so I'm going to put it out again. This time I want the fleece to be soaking wet, and I want the ground to be dry. There's a superstition in the old ways. There were a lot of things that God put up with before Christ, but this is the last time that happens because something really important is going to change. God's going to give us, through his presence, a supernatural guidance system that makes all of that irrelevant. Jump forward to chapter 13, verse 2. Beginning of verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, that's a large group of gifted teachers and leaders. 
if this was like what happened in chapter one, and they were determining who was going to go on this missions trip to the uttermost parts of the world, they'd have picked straws and say, God, guide our straws. But that's not what happened here. What happened here after Pentecost? Verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. You see the difference here? I think Luke wants us to see the last hurrah of how God worked through the old ways before the Holy Spirit came and guided us into truth. I'm not sure the point is whether or not it was the right decision because I I believe God works for good in all things for those who love him. So in that sense, that made it the right decision. They were doing the best they could with what they understood. I've come to believe that God's will is more about how we make decisions than most of the decisions specifically. Haven't you learned that too? So I think that's the lesson here. And I think what we're gonna see as we go forward is that we have the capacity to stop playing superstitious games when it comes to trying to figure out God's will for our life. I often will hear people talk about, you know, I'm just laying a fleece out. Well, I think you should be past that, frankly. That's just my opinion. I think God moves in your heart. And chances aren't you know what the right decision is because the Holy Spirit's there. And I think sometimes it's mystical, like we see in chapter 13, where God speaks in such a way that his will is very clear and very specific. But I think Another part of growing in Christ is just recognizing that when I have the Holy Spirit in my life and I'm living obedient to God, I can just make decisions and trust that they're godly ones because the Holy Spirit's in that decision with me. See, I think that's one of the huge changes that we're going to see. So just quickly, let me underscore some lessons for us. There are some important things to see here, I think, that begin to come out about the role of the apostle. We see some important qualifications in it that we'll come back and visit later. And I will just say to you that while I believe the apostolic ministry, the gift of apostle, is still available in the church today and still is exercised, the title apostle, I believe it's clear in this text and the way it's used later, only refers to those original ones who were called by God who were witnesses to the resurrection. But we can talk about that a little more going forward. That's more of a doctrinal application. But in terms of our life, one of the important things that set Matthias apart for this role was that he had seen Jesus. He had been with him from the very beginning. He could be, as Peter put it, a witness to the resurrection of Christ. I think there's something very powerful for all of us in in that. Because in that sense, all of us carry on the apostolic succession. Because what the apostolic gift primarily is, is the preservation and proclamation of the gospel. And so in that sense, if we look at ourselves as witnesses, I think it's an important question to ask. If people look at you, would they know that you've been with Jesus? If people were looking for someone to call out as a witness to the gospel, would it be you? Would your life say they've seen Jesus? They've seen the resurrection power of Jesus in their life. I think that's really worth us looking at and honoring Matthias for having that quality. Would people look to you the way they look to him? Because 
you've been with Jesus. Second, whether or not Peter's actions were correct, the most important thing they were doing at this time was not filling that position. What did Jesus say was the most important thing to do at this time? Wait. And what that means is that we cannot underestimate the importance of praying and waiting. We are so ready to get into action. Now, we know the story's gonna pick up pretty dramatically next week, and it's just gonna go. We're gonna hold on for dear life. But before that, there was a season of waiting on God. Some of us get so far out in front of God, so far out in front of Him, and we're always pushing and pushing and pushing. I've been in ministry moments like that where you're just trying to do your best, and eventually you you feel like, look, we're just doing this on our own. God's clearly not in it. But then I've been in other settings where we've just been obedient to something that God seems to have put on our heart and he takes it and he moves it along and you just realize you've been picked up by the work of God and in obedience he's just using you and you're part of something very powerful. But you gotta wait for that wave. It's like any surfer that swims out. You gotta wait for the right wave. There's a place for that and we need to learn to be before God. Wait on him, be in prayer and be ready when he works to respond. And final, God's leading today is not superstitious, it's supernatural. And it's time we started paying attention. Yes, even those of us that are from the more conservative veins of Christianity, it's time for us to pay attention to that Holy Spirit who is in us who guides us and instructs us and leads us. We need to learn to trust what our heart and what God is saying because it's available to all of us today. Some of us are still very superstitious about how we decide things instead of trusting God, being in prayer, and just being obedient to how God leads. A lot to talk about, but let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the lessons we're learning here preparing us for the transforming lessons that are going to be ahead. Father, forgive us for our superstitiousness, for looking out of our lack of faith for signs and leadings that are external rather than believing that we have the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is at work. He is guiding. Father, help us to be more sensitive, more obedient, more responsive, to the Spirit of God that's in each of us. Teach us the value of waiting on you, Father, and then stepping out when you tell us to move and when you empower us. In Jesus' name, amen.